On this week's According to Sources podcast. Rocky, do you believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Apollo Creed does, and he's going to prove it to the whole world. No, it's not Rocky versus Apollo, but I will discuss the ongoing dispute between former Apollo employee Imran Siddiqui, his new fund Caldera, and the battle with his former employer for the control of American Equity Insurance Life, ticker AEL. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. This is according to sources for the week of November 18th, 2018. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. This is such a game changer. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the subject of mergers and acquisitions, deals and activism, and the sources that both cover and surround them. Again, I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. In late May of this year, Reuters broke the news that American Equity Insurance Life, ticker AEL, was exploring strategics after receiving multiple bids from unnamed buyers. Now, initially, I thought it would be a simple cut-and-dry auction, similar to the story that played out in Fidelity Guaranteed Life, which was ticker FGL, two years prior. But further reporting has unearthed a battle for the asset, multiple lawsuits, claims of breach of non-competes, and much more. I was joined last week by Suji Indap, author of the Lex column for the Financial Times. In addition to his coverage of the dispute between Carl Icahn, Xerox, and Fuji Films, Suji has written extensively on what I think is one of Wall Street's most under-the-radar dramas, the attempted takeover of AEL. And here is that interview in full. So again, maybe you could just get people up to speed as to what's been going on behind the scenes here. Yeah, so AEL is a Iowa-based publicly traded uh, annuities provider, life insurance company, kind of three or four billion dollar value. Uh, and so I happened upon it uh, somewhat in- indirectly. Uh, the FT had reported uh, over the summer about a lawsuit uh, between uh, Apollo Global, which is the big private equity firm, and one of its former partners, a gentleman by the name of Imran Siddiqui, who had left last year. And Mr. Siddiqui had left, and he had created this new company that was going to go into invest and create an insurance, uh, life insurance platform. Uh, and he was going to do this with um, a former employee uh, of another company called Athene. Athene being mm-hmm. uh, an annuities and life insurance provider that was affiliated with Apollo, if you will. It had been uh, created by Apollo in the wake of the financial crisis. It had turned into this standalone insurance company. Uh, and it turned out... Uh, AEL was in play and so wait so just to just to backtrack because there's a lot of players here yeah. so uh, Apollo creates Athene ticker ATH that's right uh, Siddiqui is that how I say his name mm-hmm. Siddiqui is one of the top lieutenants at Apollo and he's on the board of Athene uh, he was yes and he was and so he had uh, joined Athene uh, 2008 or 2009 I'm sorry joined Apollo in 2008 or 2009 uh, and he is a, a part of the team uh, which is led by Mark Rowan, who's one of the Apollo co-founders, in creating this life insurance platform that would become Athene. Right, and Athene is like this cash cow for Apollo. That's right, and so we're going to talk about that. But right. yeah, so, so it eventually becomes a publicly traded insurance company. Uh, and how AEL fits into this is that 
Uh, it is. Uh, it has been apparently pursuing a sale, and the bidders for that uh, company, AEL, are Athene, which is again affiliated with Apollo, right. but also this new company called Caldera, which Imran Siddiqui, the former uh, Apollo, employee, um, Apollo partner employee uh, who had helped birth Athene, if you will, uh, he had struck out on his own, forming this new company called Caldera, which was also pursuing uh, AEL. So AEL is this company and hot, is being hotly pursued by both Apollo slash Athene on one side, and then a former employer of theirs, Imran Siddiqui, uh, who also is involved in this litigation with Apollo and Athene over the acquisition of AEL. And what I guess what people don't understand is that it, Athene is uh, 10% owned by Apollo, but Apollo calls the shots. They own. They have 45% of the vote, I think you said. And essentially, uh, if they wanted to buy AEL on their own, they would need to most likely clear it with the higher-ups at Apollo. Right, so Apollo, the relationships works is that yes, there's this ownership stake, this voting stake, uh, but they also have the uh, exclusive contract to manage uh, Athene's assets. And they, so they, uh, last year, for example, made $400 million in revenues just off of this uh, asset management arrangement in addition to their ownership arrangement. But yes, to your point, they exercise a great deal of control over Athene. Right. Uh, Imran Siddiqui was part of this Apollo uh, team. Uh, he departed last year, uh, and since he's left, uh, there's been a series of litigations between uh, he and Apollo uh, over the terms of his departure, whether he had violated those, and then now uh, the most recent litigation, which is ongoing uh, both in state court and uh, arbitration proceedings, is uh, about uh, the pursuit of AEL, uh, and if he's ultimately allowed to, to pursue it, uh, what are uh, respective of his terms of his departure. Right. So, and one of the, I mean, there's, it seems like everyone's suing everyone at this point, but one of the things, Siddiqui is now suing Apollo, saying that he was sort of disparaged in the marketplace, that, that uh, this is according to the court documents in the article that you wrote, that, that uh, Apollo is trying to derail this merger by sort of bad-mouthing him and also sort of um, pressuring investors and people in the marketplace saying, like, we won't do business with you if you participate in this buyout. Is that about right? That's right. So there's there's uh, allegations uh, being slung in both directions, right? So Apollo is uh, contesting his ability to compete, if you will, for this transaction, uh, accusing him of using infra confidential information that he has from his time at Apollo. He's uh, Siddiqui and Caldera, which is the new firm, and uh, there's a, uh, another person involved named Steve Cernich, who is a former Athene executive, who is the second key player at the new firm Caldera. They've made um, counter counterclaims against Apollo, Athene, uh, and even Leon Black directly, uh, the, uh, the co-founder of Apollo, saying, uh, in fact, they are trying to derail our business, uh, run us off the road, right. uh, and these are um, these are. Uh, charges we're making and uh, we're going to pursue those claims in court. Now, it seems like uh, if if Apollo really just wanted to derail this, they could just pay up for AEL, but they don't want to do that. And in fact, they've said in publicly that they think AEL is overvalued or Athene has said something to the degree that AEL is overvalued. So it seems more like, uh, let me ask you this question from the reporting that you've done. Is it that Apollo and Athene just don't want a competitor in the marketplace, or do they really want AEL? 
so I don't, uh, I don't personally have a view on that. There's been, there's been other reporting. My, my reporting has been limited to the public documents and uh, the actual litigation mm -hmm. uh, as far as like what the competitive dynamic uh, on AEL is right now. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it obviously is a asset of scale in this sector, and uh, the company, by putting, it, uh, putting itself up for sale, uh, which they've confirmed uh, themselves, yeah. uh, thinks there's uh, another party who can uh, extract more value uh, than they can by themselves. So, well, I mean, it's and again, they actually reported earnings yesterday, and on the call, they said, you know, we are not going to update strategic alternatives as of yet. And now it's been almost six months, and so. It seems like, again, this is just my opinion as, as an investor, that they're waiting for whatever needs to happen in court to resolve itself. And what I would also imagine is that Caldera and Apollo or Athene look at the asset in two different ways. If I'm Caldera, and again, this is just my opinion, if I'm Caldera, I'm trying to start a business and I need a platform to do it. And AEL is my platform. Apollo is just they're like in a way isn't Athena a bit of a roll up for them like they just they, they're very acquisitive and this would just be the latest acquisition that's right so they have uh, for 10 years been rolling up life insurance assets annuity uh, blocks of annuities or whole companies uh, like Aviva and they've uh, done a great job and created a lot of value uh, obviously for Caldera which is a startup firm uh, AEL would be would be a platform uh, and so it's a it's a rare kind of scale asset right. on the market, and so it's extremely valuable uh, to whoever buys it. Whether it's one of these two, um, as we talked, uh, as I've written about, there are other life insurance annuities platforms out there. One that has been backed by uh, Blackstone uh, and Chin Chu, who's a, a very senior, uh, longtime senior executive at Blackstone, who has uh, launched his own firm. Mm. Uh, you know, they're a theoretical buyer. There there would be a lot. There would be a lot of interest in AEL. Um, beyond just the names you mentioned here, it's uh, again a scale asset, and um, we saw FGL, the Fidelity Guaranteed Life, a right. few years ago was a major. Like fifteen people participated in that auction, uh, and then of course it was a Chinese buyer, which then was blocked. And right. it's it's a space that a lot of people would play in, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm surprised that this is taking so long. The latest article that you had was very interesting because it spoke to the sort of conflicts of interest that are happening uh, between Apollo and Athene. And uh, I would love for you to kind of elaborate on that a bit. Uh, what we've done more recently uh, in a separate story and in a long read last week in the FT uh, was to really explain uh, this extraordinary company, Athene, uh, and how, how Apollo came up with this brilliant idea, specifically Mark Rowan, uh, who's one of the co-founders. And from, uh, from the wreckage of the financial crisis, how they identified this opportunity in the life insurance space to create an enormous amount of value. You actually have a quote in there in the article that says, Apollo's bet on life insurance might be the greatest trade of the decade. Uh, since the financial crisis, that very well could be true. So uh, let's think about what they did by, uh, by getting into this life insurance business, which started initially as a trade, uh, they've created Athene, which is a publicly traded company worth $10 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I said earlier, again, they've created this um, stream of asset management fees last year, which totaled $400 million uh, that flow to Apollo. And so imagine the present value of that stream. Uh, Apollo's own market cap, it's a publicly listed alternative asset manager, is roughly $13 billion, several billion dollars of that can be attributed to Athene itself. So 
uh, as we talked about in the story, the actual uh, economics that they put into the business uh, were quite modest. Uh, and from, from that, they've created just the value I described. So it very well could be considered the best trade since the financial crisis. Right. Uh, and so the story was about uh, just uh, describing the circumstances on how this trade came about and what they did in the intervening 10 years to create this uh, incredible company. Uh, well, and also, I, what are the, the potential conflicts of interest uh, that have drawn a lot of scrutiny around Apollo and Athene. Right. And I want to get to that. But... I mean, I think uh, some of the details from the story that are particularly interesting was you mentioned how Apollo owns 10% of the equity, but they get 25% of the fees from Athene, uh, which I believe you said totaled $400 million in the past year. Yeah, so uh, much of the, or the 25% figure, but they have a contract to, to uh, manage the, uh, the investment book uh, of all those policyholder premiums. And so right. that number has totaled... Uh, last year, four hundred million dollars. So, and the one of the uh, another interesting part of the article is, you know, Apollo sort of made its mark in the deals business, like LBOs, and and you described it as an erratic business, which it is. That you're going to have earnings, but it's going to be bumpy. Uh, and having this is a very steady revenue stream for them. That's right. So I think the, the first place to start is like, what is this annuities business? And right. how does the, the business model work there? And it's actually a very straightforward business. Uh, and most people describe it as a quote unquote spread business. Uh, and so the idea is if you're a policyholder, uh, you give uh, a pot of money to Athene, and from that obviously comes an annuity, which is a stream of money. Uh, the return on that every year is roughly say something like two or three percent. So you're basically getting a contract to pay you out two or three percent for uh, a set amount of years or uh, until death or whatever the terms of the annuity may be. Mm -hmm. uh, the firm itself takes that pot of money that you gave it and has the ability to invest it uh, before it starts making payments to you. And so it owes you, let's say again, two or three percent. Uh, if it can make three, four, five, maybe six percent, some number more than two or three, that difference, that spread, is the return it keeps. And so that's the, that's the economics, making that spread. Mm -hmm. The business itself has some leverage. So you take that return of a few points and say leverage 10 times, and you know, you're looking at an ROE, something, uh, if you're good at it, between 15 to 20%. Wow. Uh, and so the whole conceit of, of Athene when it was created is that at the, uh, at the outset of the financial crisis, there was a set of uh, big traditional life insurance companies, annuities companies, uh, and they had been hammered by investment losses from the crisis. They had capital problems. They were in some various states of distress. And so here is Apollo uh, sitting right there, ready to take advantage and pounce. So they're buying books of business uh, at discounts to book value, and they're getting all these assets to manage. And being uh, as clever as they are and smart as they are as investors, there's a whole set of kind of credit investments, investment-grade type products that they can put annuity liabilities into and make a much better return than the traditional insurance company. And so that's what they've done for 10 years, buy books of annuities very cheaply, invest it in a very unique way that only a firm like Apollo can, mm. uh, and create a lot of value both for uh, Athene shareholders, policyholders, uh, and then separately they've been uh, Apollo itself charging uh, um, a significant fee to, to manage uh, those assets. Right. The rub being that they're so good at it that the, the fees you're paying on a net basis, uh, the net cost of those fees is still worth it to Athene shareholders. Now, there was a very powerful paragraph in the last article. I'm just going to read it verbatim if that's okay. It says, quote, A Financial Times investigation paints a worrisome picture of the government governance arrangements meant to keep this conflict in check. 
based on interviews with insiders, competitors, bankers, and other industry observers, as well as a review of securities filings. It shows how investors raised concerns Apollo had exploited its position. Maybe you can just explain that paragraph a little bit. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we talked about earlier just the close linkages between these two companies. So uh, the governance arrangement that was that we described was that they own 10% uh, of the economics roughly, uh, but they have 45% of the voting control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so obviously the, the board representation that goes with that. Um, but also they have this investment management contract. And so in the course of our reporting, uh, what we found going through documents and talking to people involved at the companies and uh, other interested participants who know them well and competitors and rivals and uh, others uh, is that, uh, in fact, the uh, level of influence Apollo has at Athene uh, is very, very um, uh, deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, but is that a surprise? How could it not be deep? They created it. Yes, uh, but by the same token, Athene now is a publicly traded company and a publicly traded company has all sorts of... Uh, requirements as to its governance. Key point is uh, it's a very unusual arrangement between the CEO of Athene uh, and Apollo. Uh, That that person is a a gentleman named Jim Bellardi, who was a longtime uh, insurance executive at Sun Sun America, which is a very successful insurance company founded by a guy named Eli Broad, who was a billionaire and very famously sold it to AIG at a uh, a spectacular multiple. Uh, He... uh, in the years uh, just before the financial crisis, after that transaction, AIG's Sun Sun America transaction, uh, had had an idea for an alternatives kind of insurance platform, and uh, had uh, approached Apollo, and he he and Mark Rowan really are the brains behind Athene, and so he happens to now he's now the CEO of Athene, but he's also the head of something called Athene Asset Management, which is that entity that manages the Athene investment book. Right. The thing with Athena and asset management is that it's not a part of Athene. It's a part of Apollo. Apollo owns this asset manager, uh, 95% of it, which makes sense. If it's managing its book, uh, then that, that's logical. But it also turns out that uh, Mr. Bellardi owns 5% of the profit interest in Athene asset management. So he is simultaneously the CEO of Athene, but he also works for this Apollo affiliate called Athene Asset Management, where he owns 5% of the profits. Right. And so this is all disclosed. It's not some secret. It's, uh, it's right. well known. Uh, there's a whole discussion about this in all the documents. So uh, not uh, not like we're the first person, first people to describe that. But that kind of tension between these two roles uh, is what has sparked a lot of observers to, to raise questions about this nexus between Apollo and Athene. Is this, and I'm going to ask a layman's question for someone who really just doesn't know this industry that well but using fees from insurance and and in Apollo's case perhaps using it to do deals how is that different than what Berkshire Hathaway does Uh, so it's roughly similar and uh, we talked uh, you alluded to this earlier and I didn't get to it yet is that uh, the beauty of this business or what's really attractive to it for the likes of Apollo or Blackstone is that the fees are themselves, the dollar value of the fees are relatively modest to traditional private equity. And tra- traditional private equity would be the buyouts business where you 
raise a $5 billion fund and $10 billion fund for seven to 10 years, you fly around the world and talk to sovereign wealth funds and pensions and they give you this money and you charge them so-called two and 20, where you right. get a 2% management fee and 20% of the profits. And so that business is great if you're good at it and Apollo and Blackstone and many others are. Uh, the problem with that business is a few things. One, uh, it is lumpy. So when you actually get the returns, uh, the, the carry particularly, uh, it can take years and uh, it's erratic and then you have to get the money back after 10 years and you keep your peace but then you have to keep this fundraising cycle going and you have to deal with these big sovereign wealth funds who are difficult to deal with and have all these demands and requirements and hand-holding and there's a whole kind of um, dog and pony with that which is um, lucrative but it's a lot of work. With insurance money it is the, um, uh, the famous phrase of permanent capital right. and that the money you're getting, uh, for example, from Athene, uh, Athene is selling insurance policies and annuities every day. And so that money is being replenished constantly. Obviously, you're, you're paying out claims too, but in Athene's instance, it's a growing business. And so it is a kind of form of permanent capital. There's not some sort of fund that uh, expires one day. Which is why we saw Greenlight Capital has done this. Yeah, so I said a lot of funds to set up these yeah. uh, reinsurance Third affiliates point. in uh, Bermuda. Yes. Uh, that's a little bit different business because that's the property and casualty business. Uh, and that, uh, that has been But very, it does speak to the permanent capital that's aspect right. be, of it. All these, all these managers, they all need money to invest. Mm -hmm. And so where do they get it? And what's been brilliant about Athene is that it is this $100 billion pool that they've built from scratch in 10 years uh, and that is theoretically growing and is paying 30, 40, 50 basis points, whatever. Um, which is obviously smaller than two and 20, but it is steady, it is recurring, and uh, it, should, uh, be keep, it should keep growing. Right. Let's pivot away from this uh, for a second because uh, you've written a bunch of interesting articles in the past few months, but there was one that caught my attention and it was about the Xerox and Fujifilm situation, particularly with how Carl Icahn was involved in the negotiations uh, and what turned out to be sort of derailing the negotiations. Um, Carl Icahn, who obviously uh, will always be considered one of the, the, maybe the greatest activist investor of our lifetime, uh, and champions himself as a creator of shareholder value, of late has um, been, I'll just say, seemingly looking to almost derail value. And we saw that with the uh, Express Scripts situation with Cigna, where he tried to derail that deal. And then... Uh, you know, most recently with Xerox and Fujifilm. There was a part in that article where you sort of describe the uh, investor discontent that while he has Darwin Deason on his side, that in your conversations, that he didn't have perhaps the rest of the hedge fund community on his side. Yeah, so we should uh, just back up and talk about what the situation is. So uh, Xerox, obviously the copy com uh, copier machine company, um, had entered into this uh, complex transaction with a, um, uh, another company called uh, Fuji Xerox, uh, which is a, a joint venture it uh, jointly owns with Fujifilm, the mm -hmm. Japanese company. Uh, and essentially, Fujifilm's, if you will, is, or Fuji, Zero, Fuji Xerox is the, uh, the Asian uh, component of the Xerox business. So it is the entity that has um, the, the business of selling their equipment in Asia and they own a portion of that, again, with, uh, with Fujifilm. And so they had uh, agreed to a complex transaction in uh, January where Xerox would merge with 
Fuji Xerox, the joint mm -hmm. venture, and uh, Xerox shareholders would get some portion in cash and then own 49.9% uh, of the new company with Fuji Film owning the rest. And so Xerox has two large shareholders, um, Carl Icahn and Darwin Deason, who had been there for a while for different reasons. Uh, and so they vehemently opposed this, um, this transaction. And so um, I had written about this from the perspective of the actual deal. I and mean, there's a lot of interesting dimensions to it, but the deal itself is very interesting to me. The combination, what value it did or did not create, uh, which is what uh, obviously these two investors were objecting to. And so, uh, yeah, I went through some work and kind of explained how the deal worked, mm -hmm. the structure of it, which is sort of complicated and whether uh, it actually made any sense uh, or not, or if uh, Decent and Icon had a point in, in opposing it. And what, what do you think, if you were gonna sum it up in a few sentences, what was the crux of Icon's discontent with the deal? Yeah, so the deal is complicated in that uh, Xerox, it, it's, a, it's a merger. And so instead of owning a, a piece of paper of something called Xerox, uh, suddenly a Xerox shareholder would own Xerox where they owned before, plus uh, a portion of this new business, Fuji Xerox. Uh, and so what they're getting is this new co with a bunch of synergies, they got a cash dividend. And so was that package worth more than their a uh, piece of paper called Xerox uh, the day before the deal. Icon and Decent's objections were, were many things. Uh, they didn't like the, the CEO and the board and how they had conducted this transaction. But the transaction itself they didn't like because they would have preferred just to sell uh, Xerox clean for cash at some big premium. Right. And so they thought this deal didn't create that kind of value and the board and CEO were just trying to save their jobs by creating this merger. And so that was the nature of the dispute. Okay. Based on your conversations with investors, um, do they sort of feel screwed over by Carl Icahn in this situation? Uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, you can just follow the stock price. So um, if you look at uh, the day after this deal was announced, it traded up to from something in the 20s to like the low 30s. Mm -hmm. Icahn and Decent start um, agitating and ultimately this uh, ends in a, in a place where the deal itself gets enjoined in uh, New York State Court, which is a very extraordinary ruling, which I've written about too from a corporate law perspective. And, um, the deal uh, ultimately is terminated. The CEO and board are ultimately deposed. Uh, Icon's and Decent Slate takes over, uh, and here we are, and uh, the stock is traded back down into the 20s. There's no sort of other big cash bidder that's come in. Uh, that injunction, which had halted the deal, ultimately was overruled a couple of weeks ago by the, the New York Appeals Court, which I wrote about, which is an extraordinary decision too. Uh, and so it's uh, it's a fair question as to whether the actions of Decent Icon ultimately benefited all the shareholders or whether this should have gotten to a, a shareholder vote where all the shareholders could have voted up or down on the deal. I mean, um, is this situation dead or... Is there steps that Icon and Decent can still take to get something done? Yeah, nothing's dead. I mean, I think that uh, we're in the same place we were in January. And that the issue is, is that this joint venture with Fuji Xerox, uh, the terms are very onerous. It's gone on. It's gone back many, many years. And so their ultimate uh, grievance is with this agreement and how it really creates uh, a situation where Xerox cannot cleanly sell itself to a third party. And so this merger makes a lot of sense. I reported, you know, Carl, Carl Icahn knows that. Everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of coming up with a structure that works for everyone and sharing the synergies properly. Uh, it'd be nice, again, if someone came in with a clean cash offer and paid uh, a premium all in cash and everyone sort of gets to walk away cleanly. But 
that uh, isn't really uh, in the cards right now. It wasn't in January, and that's why they announced the deal that they did. So the question is, can all these parties can create a value-creating merger for everyone, come back to the table and do that. That's a lot of what M&A is about, is like actually um, negotiating terms that make sense for everyone uh, for, the best, uh, for the best outcome. So usually um, what I'll do is I, I end every interview with five questions for the guest, uh, which sometimes are more personal and then sometimes are more serious. And so I had a series of journalism questions that I wanted to ask you, but we're, we went on for a while about the first few things. So if you don't mind, I'd like the five questions to be sort of quicker answers about journalism in general, if you, if you don't mind. Um, if you could sum up in sort of 30 seconds about your role in financial journalism, uh, if I asked you the question, how and why do you think false stories get published? What would you say? Uh, I'm sure everyone is different, but I think of... Uh, Reporters do not always have perfect information. You're triangulating between sources and documents, and you're under time pressure, and so you're trying to put that puzzle together often quickly. And so uh, in that, uh, that scramble and rush, uh, sometimes things get lost in translation, though uh, most journalists take great care and false stories, truly false, false stories that are truly like categorically wrong or rare. I think uh, the actual, uh, elements that are wrong are typically just uh, parts of the story and not, uh, never, you know, categorically is a, a story truly untrue or false. Right. So question two, staying on that theme, um, have you ever felt like you were perhaps getting manipulated by a source to publish a story? Uh, sources generally have uh, some kind of agenda, uh, not even necessarily nefarious, but everyone has a point of view and they... Uh, want a story often to be uh, explicit or implicit uh, and positioned in a certain way. And so the job of the journalist is to weigh all these sources, their credibility, and put together the story in, in the fairest uh, and the straightest possible way. And that, that is the task of the job. Is there a real life example that you can point to for yourself that you thought this guy's motivations seem suspect? Uh, I wouldn't point to any single story, but uh, what, what I would tell uh, you is that from the reader's perspective, every story you read, read it critically. Think about the the first paragraph, how they position something. Uh, think about what the counterpoints could be, uh, what the weaknesses are, either in the logic of the writing or the quotes, uh, and just to always be a um, uh, a critical reader. Uh, the other thing I would say is that stories are also uh, have a finite number of dimensions. You have word counts. You have um, Know, different points of view, but you can't get a, get across every single uh, subtlety and nuance uh, in a 500 word or 700 word or any word length story. There's always there's always more to the story. The story is never that you read. The reporter always knows more, uh, but for the sake of clarity or other reasons, have had to had to uh, condense that into something uh, that'll fit into the confines of a of a web story or a newspaper story. Right. You've worked at the FT for five and a half years, and I believe in that time was when the Nikkei takeover of the FT took place. Is that correct? That's correct. This is just, I'm, I'm speaking broadly about journalism, which I just like to study for myself because it helps me in what I do. But uh, I feel like um, the culture of Japanese journalism and British and American journalism is different. Um, 
Would you speak to that? And has the culture of the FT changed since they bought it? Yeah, so I am by no means uh, an expert uh, on uh, Japanese journalism uh, or Eastern journalism. Uh, uh, but what I will say is uh, it's good to have uh, an owner with a long-term point of view. Uh, certainly there's a lot of um, instability in the media uh, these days. And so to have uh, uh, a long-standing, well-respected, well-regarded owner is, is great uh, mm. for us as FT journalists. And what's also been great is that uh, for as long as they've owned us, We've, the FT has just done its job. Uh, the editorial standards are high. They have been unchanged. There's no, uh, I can't say there's any, from an editorial point of view, I don't, we don't, none of us do our jobs any differently. Right. Uh, well, it's not like you guys were the Daily Mail, you know, it's not like you guys are a tabloid publication and you never were. But I just feel like um, the Nikkei itself is a paper that it's factual, its hit rate is very high. Like they're rarely, rarely wrong. And so I was wondering if, you know, I, in my head, I'm seeing this all hands on deck meeting when the Nikkei comes in and they say, well, here's the new culture. We're never wrong or whatever it is, or fact check things three more times than you were before. But I, yeah, I'm making this up. I would say that the FT had uh, high standards and a great brand uh, and a great reputation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they were interested in us. And uh, I think we're still doing great work. So I hope... Uh, uh, I hope it's worked out from their perspective, right. uh, and uh, certainly we're continuing to do our jobs and uh, as uh, as we always have. Question four: In your five and a half years, what's the most unusual either way you came across a story, or the most unusual story you wrote? That's a good question. What's the most unusual story I've written? Um, I mean, a fun story for me uh, was uh, writing about uh, Fantex, which I don't know if you remember that what that was, but that was the uh, the Jock Stock Exchange, uh, the company that was taking uh, signing contracts with employees to buy a portion of their uh, like um, income, which included contracts uh, oh, for, for athletes, yeah, for athletes and yes. endorsements, and so they had securitized that and turned it into shares. Uh, and so I had written about that when that um, first took off, and then ultimately. Uh, I think I was just like going through the website one day. This was a couple of years later, and it seemed like it kind of had like shut down or kind of um, uh, just sort of ceased operations. And you know, from that, I uh, started doing some reporting, and ultimately reported on how it was actually being kind of wound up. Uh, the stocks, I believe, were still. I have to go back and see the story I wrote, but uh, just you know, surfing the web on something I'd written about a few years ago, I found out about how uh, it was seemed to have uh, to have uh, ceased to operate. Mm. Uh, or at least had uh, kind of uh, wound down quite a bit. And so uh, that turned into a scoop, uh, just surfing the web, uh, something I've written about years, abo years before. Question five. Who would your dream interview be? Dream interview? Who would it be? Uh, you know, I think a wide-ranging interview with Carl Icahn would be terrific, just not about any specific situation, which I've talked to him about, uh, over the years, I've talked to him about Xerox before, other things. Uh, but at eight, at age eighty, whatever he is now, he's had an extraordinary career. First as uh, quote unquote corporate raider in the eighties to this uh, incredible 
career and record as an activist investor, and so he's seen the kind of whole modern landscape of corporate governance, uh, financial innovation, market for corporate control. He's been in the middle of all of those really important debates, uh, both as a participant, but also as a thinker. He, has, he actually has like very kind of deep views on boards of directors and CEOs and what their job is and what the board's job is and uh, shareholder value creation and uh, how that's best achieved. And What would be the, if you were gonna ask him, if you only got one question to ask him, what do you think you would wanna know? I would ask him why the corporate raider slash activist investor model uh, has worked out so well for him, like why he's picked. Uh, he's, he's in, he can invest in any industry and uh, make a lot of money and add a lot of value. Uh, and so how, how has he been able to venture from one sector, whether one day it's PayPal, the next day it's Apple, the next day it's Xerox, now it's Dell, plenty of oil and gas companies. Like how, uh, how does he find uh, his, his targets and what is his secret sauce in creating value at all these places and disparate industries where uh, he may or may not be like a, a subject matter expert? Right, right. That's a good question. All right, Sujit, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate Pleasure it. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. My thanks again to Sujit Indap. He's the author of the Lex column at the FT. So to sum up, clearly there is substantial value at AEL. I mean, on last week's earnings conference call, management did once again reiterate that they would not comment on the ongoing strategic review. Clearly, until the legal mess between Caldera and Apollo is concluded, we most likely won't see a deal. Now, I tweeted out that I had sold the AEL common that I've owned since the summer, and I've taken a small loss on that. Instead, I've swapped it out with the February 35 calls instead. And again, as a reminder, this is a weekly podcast, but I do tweet in real time. The Twitter handle there is at Accord to Sources, A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources. Uh, also, again, if you like the content, please leave a review. It helps me to continue to get great guests like Sujit this week. And once again, I always like to say one of the biggest reasons I do this podcast is to hear what I might be missing within a situation I'm involved in, or perhaps there's a new situation I wasn't aware of. So please email me. The email there is michael at according to sources podcast.com. That concludes According to Sources for the week of November 18th, 2018. Have a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you next week.